Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thank you so much for sharing this podcast out, for reviewing it for us on your podcast apps. And uh, as usual, we'd love to invite you to join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group, where we as moms continue the conversation around this podcast and engage in Facebook Lives and other enriching discussion so that we can become more mission-centered. So. Thanks for being with me today. We get to continue our series on feminism, which frankly, at this point, with all of the content I'm finding, it may last the entire year, but it's been a really fun journey for me so far. I'm discovering lots of cool things and wanna keep sharing those with you. So our last feminism podcast was on um, women in ancient times. And today we're going to talk about women in medieval times. Now, before I start, I just want to give a little disclaimer that this is Western world material. I am not a scholar in Eastern studies. I have read some religious texts. I know some Eastern history, but most of my education has focused around the great books of the Western world, the history of the Western world, the prominent dominant ideas of the Western world, the um, core values and religious texts of the Western world. So that is where my reference point is. And so the women that we talk about in medieval times are going to be in the Western world, just as ancient times was focused on the Western world. And that's not meant to be a cop-out. It's just um, where my education is, but it also has been proven to me by mentors and other scholars that I really trust that we ought to try to understand our own history and culture before we try to understand others. That it's important that we become versed in the books of the Western world. And then with that context and frame of reference and understanding who we are, we can begin to try to understand other worldviews and other cultures. So I'm trying to um, give context and flesh out some of the history and some of the major players and some of the context for what has become known as quote feminism in the Western world. I will mention a couple things as we go along, touch on a couple other things around the, around the East, but by and large, this is what we're doing with these feminism podcasts. And hopefully they just introduce you to ideas and concepts and people that maybe you didn't know before and put everything kind of in a frame of reference as we march forward chronologically. Now, one of the things that I want to say here, first of all, in conjunction with this whole Western world theme, is in reading about women in the medieval times, I happened upon uh, a, a website that was talking about medieval women. And I'm going to quote a sentence from there, but 
This is the kind of sentence that's said over and over and over again in modern textbooks and all over the internet on YouTube videos and, and everywhere. And, and I want to just put it in context and refute it a little bit. It goes like this. Women were still considered inferior to men in medieval times they're talking about owing to biblical narratives and the teachings of the church. Now, first of all, if you go to the biblical narratives, what you find is quite a few heroic women whose stories were intentionally included, whose lives were held up as exemplary, and um, who are seen as heroic figures. There is also quite a bit in the Bible. It's predominantly centered around how women should be treated properly and not, um, not allowing any kind of infidelity or um, abuse or that kind of thing. There was polygamy in some instances in the Bible. That's kind of a different conversation. And you could say that that plays into the inferiority of women in the Bible. But I just want to, I just want to point out that there also are heroic women. There's also prophetesses, who guided prophets and who guided military leaders. And of course, we can see in the example of Jesus in the New Testament how women, how he treated women, how he thought of them, how he respected them, how he um, cared for them, and and uh, and loved them. So just want to make that point that it's not as if every sentence in the Bible is beating down women and letting everybody know how horrible they are and how they should be mistreated and all this kind of thing. It's not the case. And the other point I want to make is that it's not just a problem in the West. It's not just an issue in the West, I should say. Women were treated pretty much the same in pretty much every culture. Uh, you have polygamy pretty much everywhere. You have concubines, you have prostitutes, um, you have inequality of the sexes and foot binding and all that kind of stuff going on all around the world. It's, it's short-sighted to say that this is a biblical problem, that this is, this is predominantly or exclusively a Western problem, that this only happened in the medieval world because the church, the, and when they say the church, they mean the Catholic church, because the Catholic church was, you know, quote, so horrible, and the biblical narratives were so horrible. Um, that is an incomplete education, incomplete exposure to the sources, and misunderstanding and a misconstruing of history and a misrepresentation of what's happened historically. So I just want to get that out of the way and have that said once and for all, that I'm first of all focusing on the West for specific reasons, and that this isn't specifically a Western problem, and that there is much um, to be celebrated about womanhood and women and motherhood in the Bible. Okay, so that being said, let's talk for just the next few minutes about what it was like, what we know, we don't know very much, but kind of in medieval times, there are a few things that we do know. One of them is that there are a lot of court documents, business transactions, land sales um, to prove that women were successively running 
um, helping their husbands run their businesses or running businesses that went on after their husbands died. Of course, we had the medieval guild system and women were managing estates and were also valued members of the guild. They uh, were, there were many gifted artisans that used their gifts and sold their wares and that kind of thing that were women and wives that were helping their husband, husbands or co-owning um, and running businesses with their husbands. So that definitely went on. One of the things I think it's important to point out too is that ironically, it's in the upper classes that um, you find kind of maybe more, maybe that's not quite fair, but you find a lot of not seeing women as equal, fighting to not have them educated, blah, 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 blah. Whereas it's, it's kind of like the middle class has always been the boon of any thriving society. They, they've been the core of it. And you find the same kinds of things. Men had to rely on their wives to raise children, to run the household, to help with the businesses, to work hard physically. And um, they usually tended to be more faithful. They tended to marry one woman. They tended to treat her in their interactions as more of an equal than than the higher classes, ironically. And so that's what we're finding when we're looking at these medieval guilds and this time period. And we, we find that today as well. When you have those that are in our positions of high power, uh, high wealth and privilege, there's often corruption on both sides with men and women, um, immorality and that kind of thing. So that being said, there were also other women who we don't have any record of, who lived notable lives and all that kind of thing. But I just wanna spend a few minutes running through some cool stories about some awesome medieval women who we know about, just to kind of demonstrate the kinds of things that women did do in Western history that we know of for sure. To, I think the main point I wanna demonstrate through their stories is that there's actually more there than we think there might be that women were in positions politically, they were in positions um, as artisans, they were writing things and having influence, they were running different organizations, et cetera, et cetera. And so it wasn't the norm for sure, but there were definitely men that respected women and there were definitely women in positions of respect and authority. So Theodora of Byzantinium is a great example. She's the 500s AD. Um, I don't use CE, which is popular today. I just go with the older form and people might be bugged about that, but that's what I'm familiar with. That's what I grew up on and that's what we did for a really long time. So anyway, she was an actress in Constantinople. She converted to Christianity and we know um, Emperor Justinian fell in love with her. He changed the law to forbid royalty from marrying kind of more common people and actresses and made her his wife and partner in his rule. He really deferred to her a lot, loved and respected her. She had a lot of say in what went on, a lot of influence over him, equal power to him in many regards. He took her counsel to heart. And on one particular example of his influ her influence over him is when she talked his court out of fleeing the, the city during the Nika riots 
and uh, she advised them. She went to them and she was like, look, I know I'm not supposed to speak in court, but this is a really important occasion. And they listened to her, um, kind of reminds us of the story of Esther in that regard. And she told them that they shouldn't flee because if they would preserve their lives in fleeing the city, the lives that they lived afterwards would not be worth living. So they wouldn't have been men and stood up for themselves and their city and their families. And so they ought to stay and fight. They took her advice and, and they were able to win and she ruled with her husband until she died. Another one is Hilda of Whitby. She was a noble woman, but she chose to live a life of piety and devotion instead of at court. And so she became a nun and um, she became the abbess of an order founded at Whitby Abbey. And this abbey was known as a center of learning and culture. This was in the 600s AD. She was a, a, an incredible administrator and knew how to run the many facets of a big estate. She was known for her counsel and encouragement. And in fact, um, she encouraged the shepherd Cadman to write his famous hymn, the oldest one in Old English. She also, King Oswa of Northumbria, I think that's how you say his name, he chose her abbey as a, a, as a place for an important um, synod of meeting, the religious meeting that they had to make important religious decisions because of her reputation for wisdom and the strength of her counsel. And after she died, many miracles were attributed to her and she eventually became uh, a chief sainthood in the Catholic Church. So these women are, you know, 500, 600 BC and they're having massive um, societal influence and impact respected, greatly respected by men in high, high positions of leadership. Their counsel's being listened to and they're, they're influencing many, many lives. Andy, the illuminator, was in the late 700s and she was a nun in a monastery in Spain. She worked on manuscripts and I guess she was just a beautiful illustrator. She was called the illuminator and she would help the scribes and illuminate the manuscripts. There's a, an important manuscript known as the Garona Beatus compiled by a monk and it was signed by all the artists and it was signed by her Andy, God painter and God's helper, which was really sweet. Um, and so she was a, an important scribe and artist that had her name on important works of the time. Uh, Athelflaed, Flaed, I'm not sure how you say her name, Lady of the Mercians, she's in the 900s AD. She was the daughter of Alfred the Great and became Queen of Mercia. She believed in literacy and that it encouraged piety. So people would be more um, virtuous and believe in God if they were more highly educated. She was highly educated and cultured. Her court was known for the culture that was there. And, but she was a great military leader. She defeated the Vikings at the Battle of Chester because she carefully planned the defense of the city. She formed alliances with other kingdoms. And uh, she also did city planning. She was really great at that, at that kind of strategic skill set. She planned and organized the cities and villages for maximum efficiency and to make them more beautiful. And she was really fantastic at boosting the economy of the Vikings and, uh, I mean, boosting the economy of her people and protecting them against further Viking raids. Um, we know Hrotsvita, 
von Gandersheim, if that's how you say it. Um, she's also in the 900s. She was um, a canonist, which means she didn't follow the vow of poverty, but she took vows of obedience and chastity that all nuns did. And there was a, a Ricarda who was responsible for teaching and training them. And she taught Hortzvita. And she later, she had a great intellect. She later became an abbess. And she was an incredible writer. So she wrote a bunch of plays on Christian themes. She also wrote poems and a little bit of prose. She chronicled history and legend. And she wrote in Latin so that other, um, you know, that was the that was the language of the of the scholars around the world at the time so they could read each other's writings, which is super cool. And it's clear that she had access to the writings of the greats like Ovid, Terence, Virgil, and Horace. And she her works kind of reflect the kinds of things that they talked about. Her plays were in honor of saints, the martyrdom of the Holy Virgins, the conversion of the harlot Theus, the martyrdom of, of faith, hope, and charity. And so she was using these Christian themes to tell really powerful stories about women, about women martyrs and about the conversion of, of good women. She wanted them, her plays were funny and satirical, and she was trying to encourage chastity and virtuous living with her plays. Uh, she also wrote a work on the Abbey's founding that she was a part of. And so a really great influential writer. And of course, her plays were uh, rediscovered and printed and all that kind of stuff. Hildegard of Bingen, this was in 1000 to 1100. She was a mystic, a healer, a scientist, a visionary, an author, a composer, and an abbess who claimed to receive visions from God from the time that she was three years old. At one point, she said that she'd received a vision that she needed to move her order to Rupertsburg and she had a male superior who refused her request but she pressed and pressed and pressed until she was given permission and she was so respected for her leadership abilities that she was founded a second order after she had established that first one at Rupertsburg. Kind of reminds me of Mother Teresa who did the same kind of thing through her persistence and her unshakable faith in her visions. She had influence with those in uh, positions above her. She was highly literate and well-versed in musical composition, and she wrote some musical works and scientific and medical uh, letters as well. So really awesome, influential woman. Marie de France was a multilingual French poet she was in the 1100 to the 1200s, a translator. Uh, she wrote her poetic work, The Lay de Marie de France, which popularized the, the concept of courtly love. So basically, she, now there's some question, there were other, a couple other writers at the same time who were also writing these kinds of works, but she is generally given credit for the chivalric uh, these kind of courtly love chivalric code works. And they often showed the power of women. And this was an important medieval genre of chivalric literature that we have access to today. 
She wrote poetry and fables, and they were very popular even in her own time, especially among the aristocracy of France and England. And her poetry features strong women who direct their own fates. Now, there's a lot more I want to share with you about women in medieval times. But the podcasts have gotten increasingly longer, up to 45 minutes. And I don't want to continue to burden you with these incredibly long podcasts. So my goal moving forward is to keep them a little shorter and more manageable for you. So in this instance, it means that you have a part two to look forward to next month. We'll talk more about um, the Magna Carta and what it said about women and some other women in a little bit later medieval times. Really cool examples and stories and their writings and It'll be a lot of fun. So we'll finish up here for now on this uh, Feminism and Medieval Times Part 1. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you want to have more conversation around this and talk about some of the examples that I've shared and ask any questions, please join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group where we do that and continue to discuss these podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me. Please continue to share it with those that you love and you feel will benefit from it so we can keep growing. Thanks so much and I'll see you next time.